Welcome to already the second episode of the Product and Founders podcast, a podcast about product managers and founders in tech about their journey to build great digital products. My name is Elie Geoffroy, product manager and former founder, and I will be your host. I'm also writing an ebook with lessons from the most talented product managers and founders in the world about how to build great digital products. If you want to know more, go to productandfounders.com. Today's guest is female powerhouse Gulnas. Gulnas is the CEO of EasySize, a mission-based startup that has built an AI-powered size and recommendation platform for apparel and shoes so people can stop sending back online purchases because the size isn't right. Besides that, she writes about sustainable fashion for forms and she recently made her first angel investments. So I would say quite a lot to talk about. Let's dive right into it. Well, welcome to the Product and Founders Cut. That's off to the good start. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, again, so welcome to the Product and Founders podcast. It's really great to have you here. How is everything back in in Denmark? Is the country opening back up again a bit? Uh, Yeah, well, thank you, first of all, for having me. The country is slowly coming out of the lockdown. Well, probably slowly is not the right word because it's uh, been a couple of weeks uh, since everything has opened up. So it's pretty much life back to normal here. Um, and I think in general, the lockdown hasn't been that strict here as in a lot of other countries. Well, as long as people maintain their distance, I guess that's uh, responsible. There are a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But first, let's look into how you grew up a bit. You're from Moscow, Russia, originally. Were you from an entrepreneurial family? No, I did not grow up in an entrepreneurial uh, household. I would say that actually quite the opposite. So growing up, my uh, parents always told me that two worst things that I can do in my life in terms of profession, it's either to uh, work in show business. And I guess that's because I've been always fascinated by by singing. I really like that. And uh, my godmother, she's a, a famous opera singer. So she would always drag me to these concerts and stuff. Or the second option will be to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> so talking about family expectations and disappointments, right? Um, so I think for my parents, it was largely because they, you know, living in, in Russia and surviving several financial crises, seeing the country to co- uh, collapse and so on, they really wanted me to have a path to a very stable life. Um, so my dad would usually say, you know, go get a bank job or work for government. Those two things will be always around. So, mm. um, and I mean, in all honesty, that was a period of time when I did work in a bank and that was very miserable. <laughs> it made me very unhappy. Um, but yeah, so it wasn't necessarily an entrepreneurial background that I had. Okay. But what do you think has been like a determining factor? What do you think has led you then to walk the path of entrepreneurship? Um I think, honestly, I think it was uh, one book uh, that I read back when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 years old. And it was a book called uh, Marketing Management by Dr. Philip Kotler. Uh, And yes, I read those kind of books when I was nine or 10 (laughs) years old. I was going to (laughs) say. But uh, it was about marketing principles, so quite boring in a sense. But what was really fascinating for me is the examples that he was using in his book. And there were a lot of uh, entrepreneurial examples, like, you know, people starting companies out of their garage. And and for me, it was just so insanely fascinating. Um, I, from that age, I looked at it as a very creative process. Um, So I knew that, okay, maybe I don't have a talent to, you know, 
paint something or write poems, but this is a creative process that perhaps I can find myself in. Um, and with that, at that time, I've decided that I'm either going to build my career within marketing or I'm going to start a business. And because it was such a taboo in my family, I've just decided to focus on the marketing side of things. So, you know, I went to get on my bachelor and everything, but throughout the years, I was always really going back to the entrepreneurial things. Like I would write business plans for people that I knew, or I would try to do some, you know, small things here and there to help people out who were doing their businesses. So I think for me, it was always interesting. Um, and then I ended up in this group of people back in the university when I was getting my bachelor who were, um, you know, trying to start something by themselves. And I've decided that, well, if they can do it, why, why shouldn't I try as well? And that's how I pretty much ended up because I was just so excited about this whole new evolving community and I wanted to be a part of it. So you started your first company at age 19 where you were still living in Moscow. It was a tech company that based on various data points offered recommendations and forecasts to restaurants about how many walk-ins they would have, how many reservations, etc. This is kind of a niche idea. Uh, how did you come up with that? Um, at the time, I was working um, in an agency that uh, provided digital services for restaurant businesses. So for me, it was really exciting to go and meet with these restaurant owners and talk to them. And then every time when I'll be talking to them, I'll see that um, a lot of them were not really doing forecasting properly. It was pretty much a gut feel. Like, okay, last month we had that many visitors. Probably this month we'll have the same maybe 5% more if we're doing some marketing. So I just saw an opportunity there and I've decided, well, perhaps there is something that I can do here. And that's how I've decided to start it and try it out and, and you know, ended up pretty much like focusing on that for a couple of months. Okay. And that then became like your full focus or did you also work on other things on the sides? Um, I did work at the same time. So it wasn't like, um, you know, a full time thing for me for a very long time. Um, so I think in general, I was doing it for maybe about like eight to nine months. Uh, so it wasn't a, a very long journey. Um, and um, I would still pick up some gigs here and there, do some part time things. Um, because again, obviously, even though I did have angel investments, it was pretty much going on to pay the developers and, you know, making sure that things are functioning. And uh, I still needed to make sure that I have some money left for myself. Okay. And so then you closed it down, right? Which I think is, well, an experience that a lot of uh, first time founders probably have. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't really closed down because I did, uh, in a way, exit it because uh, we ended up selling the technology to a restaurant chain and they even ended up implementing it. So it, in a way that I myself didn't see much from it, <laughs> but uh, there was a, an okay return to the investor who initially invested in it. And I think that was a learning for me to make sure that uh, whenever you go for investments, you you know really understand the terms and understand what could happen if this is to be exited and you know if things go well, if things don't go well and so on. Got it. And so this exit wasn't really fruitful for you then? Um, I mean, it was a learning, right? Uh, in terms of money, yes, it wasn't that much, but we also didn't build that much. And I knew that as well, right? Um, and of course, I didn't have the benchmark at that time um, because there weren't really exits at all happening in the Russian tech startup community. And how do you advise first-time founders to be diligent about something like that? Um, I think first and foremost is talk to other founders. 
Um, in a lot of cases, founders who are maybe a couple of steps ahead of you, they've already made those mistakes or maybe they knew how to avoid that. Um, secondly, it's really uh, dive deeper into the actual, the boring part of a deal, right? I think way too many founders, they focus on valuations and you know the, the how much equity they're giving out, but they really forget about other terms. And that's what comes to bite them in the ass in a sense, right? If, if things don't go well, or if th things go really well. So all those boring things like, you know, uh, liquidation preferences and anti-dilution terms and things like that. I've seen way too many companies being killed by that uh, because they were just, the founders didn't think about those things in the early stage. Okay, so for you, it was a lesson learned. If you look back at that experience, is there anything else uh, you would have done differently or that you learned from that? Um, I really hope that one of the learnings from there will be to not be a solo founder, uh, but I have clearly failed at that because my current company, my third company, I am a solo founder uh, and uh, it just happened like this. And uh, yeah, but that's kind of, I really hope that if one day I'm, I'm, I am to start one new startup, I will not be a solo founder. And that is something that I always advise against um, all the founders that I meet. How so? Because of the mental pressure and the toll it takes on you as a founder. I know that in a lot of cases, it's obviously easier if you, let's say, have two or three people, you have complementing skills. It means that you can move faster and so on. And I know that it's uh, easier to raise money if you're not a solo founder. But I think for me, the biggest difference there is really the uh, the mental pressure because you are the only person who makes every single, well, not every single, but every single important decision in the company. You, of course, can have your advisors and your board and everyone, but you are the one who calls the shots. And I think it takes a huge toll on, on all the solo founders that I know. So is it also the case for you then now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think if I am to think about the hardest things that I do or I've done during my journey, current journey, is it's really the sort of like balancing out like uh, the stress and, and the, the mental pressure that uh, you need to go through. And how are you trying to deal with that then? Um, I think over the years I tried to develop a system that works for me. Um, so And I kind of divide it into three pillars. So there is first one, which is physical and mental. Um, the second part, which is more of the systematic. And then the third one is uh, people around you. So with the first one was mental and physical one, I make sure that I have healthier routines and I try to be very diligent with the discipline there. So like I exercise every day, I meditate every day, I make sure that I eat healthy food, I make sure that I moisturize and drink my water and you know, all those things get enough sleep like eight yes getting yes, enough sleep I'm getting water. <laughs> yes um getting enough sleep right um i know that in in some cases that um, hustle culture is really glorified in the startup community mm -hmm. and i think it's really damaging i think you cannot run a company successfully if you as a founder completely burn out um, the second part, systematic part, is more uh, to do with things that you do on a daily basis in your company. So that's kind of something that I try to examine all the time. I make sure that I have very clear structure in my calendar, in my, I deal with emails. I'm obsessed with, with dealing with my emails and optimizing that. I, I know that. I know that. <laughs> yes. You've taught me some. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, and then also just like, uh, you know, sometimes I think it's good to take a step back and uh, think about, okay, I'm doing a certain thing right now and it really makes me feel bad. Why? Perhaps it's something that is really draining and you shouldn't be doing. Maybe you can delegate it or skip it altogether. 
And then the final part is people. Um, I think it's extremely important for founders to have a strong uh, support group around them. And for me, it comes down to, you know, uh, my friends and family, but also other founders that I can connect with and I can have their honest conversations with. So having those people um, extremely um, helps because it means that even if I had a bad day, I can call someone and, you know, that can really lift me up. Is this as a result of being like a single founder or do you think that this goes for founders in general? Um, I think it's uh, in general a good idea to do that. Um, because founder burnout is a real thing and it happens even if you have two or three co-founders. But I think if you are a solo founder, that is something that you have to be extremely uh, careful with. Um, So yeah, so it's just like the the level of importance, I guess, uh, just increases. Yeah, Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But then, you know, the question that I have is why did you decide again to become a single founder? Well, it it wasn't a decision per se, mm. just things just happened like that. Yeah. So for me, I I think I was just so uh, passionate about the problem that I was trying to solve. And I just thought that, well, I will kick it off and then surely um, it will be easy for me to find someone to join me. Um, and I think there are a couple of things that I didn't uh, think about, right, when I was starting, because first of all, I've decided to start it in a new country, in Denmark, right? I moved to Denmark to start my company. I didn't have any network here. I didn't know anyone, right? The only people I knew, there were people in the same acceleration program that I was a part of, and they were already set teams, right? So it meant that it's it's hard to find someone who will join you. Um, And then it's also, it's just like it, it continued like that. I remember after I closed my first um, small angel um, round, I called one of my angel investors and I asked him, listen, um, everyone keeps telling me that I need to have a co-founder and I really tried to find one, but I'm just not being able to, to do that. What should I do? And he said like, well, listen, it seems that you're already managing it quite well if you got the company that far. So maybe just carry on. And if the right person comes your way, then, you know, you will just make sure that they will become part of your core team. And I mean, in all honesty, like that did happen in a sense, like over the years, like now I have a very strong core team and and people that I trust and uh, people that I respect immensely. Right. It's I guess it just was already far ahead um, that, uh, you know, I I remain a solo founder. Cool. So let's dive a bit into Easy Size, your current company that you founded by yourself. You predict the right size for a customer when ordering apparel or shoes online, which is great because I don't have to have the hassle of returning stuff because it doesn't fit. How did you come up with this idea? Was this problem something you were experiencing yourself also? Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm, uh, I at that time, and I think even still now a little bit, like I'm, uh, I, I'm a little bit awkward in in social communications <laughs> with like random people. Okay. So I would find it extremely awkward to go to a store and ask a shop consultant or assistant to help you out with finding the right size and so on. And also with that, I was ordering a lot online and usually from like European American websites, and the sizing is completely different there. So it will be uh, pretty much a regular routine. For me, I order something, I get it, I go try it on, it doesn't fit. Um, So at that time, I thought, well, maybe we can make some kind of like mobile app. Uh, Mobile apps were really becoming a big thing at that time, Mm -hmm. where we like magically take a picture of you, we will try to capture your measurements, and then of course, we will use size charts that are very reliable and they're not from brands and try to recommend the size. Mm -hmm. So I had this idea, I was like, why not to try it out? So 
Um, that time in Russia, the startup community, I guess, was just kind of like starting. And there were a lot of different conferences where a lot of international speakers will be invited to. So one of these conferences was a startup pitching competition. So I ended up going there pitching it and uh, I didn't get great feedback. And one of the guys who was the most critical, it was a, a guy called Lars Book um, from Copenhagen. And he just pretty much said, you know, what's your daytime job? Just stick with that. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. Don't waste your time. Wow. Um, yeah, and but I'm I'm just not a person who just takes that as an answer. So at the um, you know kind of like after after party drinks uh, session, I grabbed two drinks and I came to him and I said, "Listen, this is a drink for you. While you're drinking, I need to know why you didn't like it. You know what could I do better?" And yeah. He gave super great feedback. Um, it was very insightful. It was very reasonable. And then at the end, he said, well, listen, I'm starting an acceleration program in Copenhagen. Why don't you apply? So I applied. I uh, uh, Then a month later, um, I was invited to come for a selection days, which pretty much like I called in sick at work, uh, flew in on Thursday evening, spent two days in Copenhagen and completely fell in love with the city and the people here. And I've just decided, um, you know, two days later, they told me you're invited. So I went back to Moscow, I quit my job, I packed up everything. And two weeks later, I was in Copenhagen. And that's how this whole thing started for me. So how do you come up with the braveness to approach someone that has just dissed you? I mean, he didn't really diss you, but it sounded a little bit harsh. <laughs> so why did you approach him and invite him for a drink? Um, I think it's just because I'm stubborn. And, um, you know, for me, it's like it wasn't about me. It was about the idea that I was just working on it. So I didn't take it as ne anything negative. I took it as more like, hey, maybe there is something that I'm missing here. Let's talk and see whether that makes sense or not. Cool. And then you decided to move to Denmark. Did you have any doubts about that? Because this was after your earlier startups. And at that point, you were working a corporate job for a while. I looked at it as a huge experiment. So I told myself, listen, you're anyway unhappy now. Um, if you want, you can always go back. You can always get that corporate job. It doesn't matter. You have the savings for the next like maybe nine months or so. Why not to give it a try? So that's how I just look at it. And I think it's really, it shows how desperate I was and how unhappy I was because I was like, Copenhagen, sure, let's go to this place I've never been to before <laughs> to live there starting. And I think it's also like, that's how they get you because the selection day was in August and summer in Copenhagen <laughs> is beautiful. Yeah. And then I came in there and two weeks later, it was mid-September and suddenly it was just gray and dark and raining all the time, right? Um, but yeah, I just looked at it as an experiment. I thought, why not? I am a bit like distrusting towards uh, accelerator programs. Yeah. Like, you know, you have EF, Y Combinator. Like, I think those are very renowned, but like generally I don't trust them as much. How mm -hmm. is that for you? Like, has it helped you at all or? Yeah, no, but I think it's, it's, it's important what you're mentioning here. Like, I do think that uh, now accelerators are becoming a, such a common thing. And uh, a lot of them, they don't really deliver on the promise because I do think that they don't have startups best interest in place, right, uh, or in mind. Um, and uh, they either go too broad, you know, getting different type of companies on board, or they just don't make it very specific, like, hey, we will help you to learn how to pitch and we will have a demo day at the end, right? Like, be very upfront exactly. with people about exactly. that. Um, I think for me personally, it was super helpful. And first and foremost, it was because of the uh, um, existing network that the Accelerator program had here. So it meant that 
even though I was an immigrant and I didn't know anyone here, they already had an existing network of some mentors and some other companies. So it wasn't as, you know, kind of scary for me to, to start it off. Um, secondly, it was because I, I think the way they built it, it was very much based on the constant um, check-in with you. So of course there are workshops, of course there are some, you know, some program and so on, but they will be like constantly checking in with you. And I think that just helped me to stay very much like, you know, focused on what I needed to do. And I think in general, like the, pe the people who ran it, um, they were quite vigilant with making sure they're not wasting uh, startups time. So they will be harsh with you if they thought that you're not delivering or if you're just, you know, not focusing on the right things. And uh, I think that in a way that really helped me out. So you started this accelerator program, but you still had like a very like bold and visionary idea, right? At that point, like, how did you go to uh, one validating that this is actually a problem that was not only for you, uh, but two also working towards something that is actually something you can like, you know, release as an initial product? Yeah, um, I think, first of all, what's important to understand, like I came to it uh, as a consumer, right? And uh, I, I had this problem as a consumer. And just by simply talking to people around me, I could see that it was easily the issue for everyone. Um, what was uh, the, the missing point there was that I, I was not from the industry. I didn't know anyone from the industry. So the first thing that I've decided to do, I decided to talk to as many people I could. Um, from the industry as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was literally, you know, fashion brands or people working in online shops and so on. And I would just ask them and literally everyone just like, yeah, of course it is a problem. And only after talking to them, I've realized that the way it manifests in a business is that uh, they have an insane amount of returns. So like fashion is an industry that has approximately 25 to 40% of returns, which is crazy uh, if you think about it, right? And the majority of them because of the wrong size and fit. So that's how I realized that not only that was a, an actual tangible issue for the industry, but also that's how I made the shift from B2C to B2B because to me it became very clear that there is a problem, but, and of course users are struggling, but the industry is the one who is uh, facing the actual, you know, cost. And also the second thing I've realized that um, when you think about sizing, um, you as a consumer, like on average, you, like, you don't care about sizes. You only care about them in the moment when you're making a purchase. So therefore it has to be on the website of a, of a shop. I can tell uh, you as a consumer is like, hey, you want to get a size for this pair of sneakers that you want to buy? Oh, well, go download our app and then do something with that, right? Because it's just not going to work. So that's how slowly, slowly I, I came to realization that, okay, it has to be targeting um, as a B2B product. It has to be on the website. And that's how I've decided to build the first plugin, which was like something that you implement on the product page. And then we like ask you questions. And with that development, that was also different because I knew as a consumer, again, because I have my, that problem myself, I will never try to measure myself. It's not something that is easy, you know, to do because you need to take measurements in a certain way. But I also know that every time I measure myself, I don't think about a new dress. I think about going on a diet or exercising more, right? Like I don't want to feel bad about myself. So I knew from the beginning, we cannot use any measurements. So what can we do after that? And I was lucky that I had a couple of people with like sort of tech mind um, around me who helped me to come up to this realization that this should be built in a way where we will compare users to each other because that will help us to first of all build in a very scalable way. It will be better user experience because we won't ask them ab uh, about measurements. And it also will be something that will reflect their unique style and fit. 
right? Because you might be, you know, of certain dimensions, but if you like everything oversized, there is no need to recommend you smaller sizes. You will just go for a bigger one. And that's kind of what we wanted to reflect. Okay. So how did that first uh, plugin uh, look like? And, and did you build that yourself or how did it go? Uh, well, I mean, I had a couple of people who helped me out with that because I'm myself not technical, technical. Um, but it was important for me to validate that on the data side of things, this makes sense. So what I did, because I've always liked spreadsheets, that's kind of my gem. Uh, so, and at the time I had a friend who was working in, um, in an online shop. So I just, and he was like an IT guy in an online shop. So I just asked him like, hey, um, can you share orders and returns data with me? <laughs> and he okay. was like, sure, why not? <laughs> so he just shared data of orders and returns. And then what I decided to do is like run a script in a, in a spreadsheet a simple one to see whether if I remove sizes from one case and then I have a test sample, whether that will recommend the right one or not. And of course, the first version of it was, it wasn't great, right? It was just something like 75% accuracy, but it was already better than I could pick myself. So I'm like, if I not knowing anything about data science can build it, then obviously if I have the right resources, this will be super accurate. Yeah. It's funny that you say 75% because I think like generally 75% is already like pretty good. And like the higher you come, like the more difficult it will get to optimize and the more like advanced statistics or machine learning you will have to use. But I would definitely say that someone without <laughs> like any data science background or whatsoever, getting the 75% uh, is pretty good. I mean, well, obviously just to add to that a little bit, obviously like there were a lot of uh, good factors that helped me with that, right? Because it was a shop with three brands on so it meant that there, uh, there was a certain consistency among these brands as well as consumers and so on. So I, I'm sure if I tried to do it on a different shop, the accuracy would have been much lower. And I'm glad that I didn't because it gave me the confidence to move forward. Um, but you're completely right. Like, you know, it took us a long time, like now to get to the point of like 92, 95% that we have today, like it took five and a half years of development to get that to that point. And probably also a lot of data. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I think not only the quantity of the data, like today we have 16 million shoppers in our data set, um, like 50 million transactions and so on. It's also the diversity of the data, because one thing that we are seeing always when it comes to fashion is that um, behavior of users is comp completely skewed. Like if I'm buying a dress from H&M versus a dress from Chanel, right? My thinking and the error that I'm okay with will be different. The same way if I'm buying directly from a brand or in a marketplace, it will be a different loyalty as well. So that's why for us also was important that this data is diverse, that it's coming from different type of merchants and third party services and, you know, companies that we work with. Yeah. So I can imagine that, you know, right now it's probably much easier to convince people to use a service like having this, you know, five and a half years of optimizing the models and the algorithms, you know, collecting all that data. But how did you go about like acquiring your first customers? Maybe it was an online webshop you just talked about, but was that difficult in the beginning when you didn't have as much data or as you know, accurate models as you do now? Um, I think it's also, you know, the way it happened, it was kind of random and I guess it was a little bit lucky in a way, mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, I, you're right. Like for any startup securing your first customer or like even the first test subject is super important. And when I, when we built the first MVP, um, it was clear that we needed to have some kind of big multi-brand store to test it out with. Um, and at that time that was this, uh, company in the UK that was just growing and was kind of promising called Farfetch. Um, and uh, I, I happened to know a founder who was connected to the founder of that company. And I just asked him, 
um, could you please introduce me? And then the founder put me in touch with a guy at that time, as an amazing guy who I'm, I'm a big fan of called David Lindsay, um, who was their chief digital officer or chief data officer. He now works with LVMH Group, but he's like the nicest guy ever. So he actually jumped on a call with me, a complete nobody, right? Uh, who, like I didn't know what I was doing at the time. And we had a call, I explained him that we built an MVP and the technology seems promising. And he was like, yeah, why not? Let's run the test. So we did the first proper test with uh, Farfetch when um, they gave us some data. Um, we uh, uh, performed some, you know, offline tests there to uh, evaluate the accuracy, and it was right. And uh, you know, and that helped us out to move forward and, and get other customers and like constantly reevaluate and improve the, the algorithm. But I'm 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 super super grateful for David to keep taking a chance in a sense on on someone who was a complete nobody at that time. So big shout out to David. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> was this like still you? You talk about we. Did you already like recruit people here or what did the company look like back then? Um, yeah, so that was pretty much at the time when we still didn't have any funding yet. So we were just about to um, secure our first angel funding. And so it was pretty much running still on my own savings. And who is we? In a way, it was like myself. And then there were two developers who I got on board. First as interns and, you know, it was some like uh, unpaid at first and then it was just like part-time things and so on. One of them, um, he became a good friend. Um, so um, he initially, it was just a plan that he will help me out for three or four months before moving to Paris to pursue his PhD. And the other one, it was first employee that I ever got on board. Um, so these two guys, they really were the ones who, you know, were putting it together in the beginning and, uh, you know, making sure that I had something to show to investors and to shops that I was talking to. And how did you like convince them to, because I can imagine like me being a software, well, I'm not a software engineer, but like me being a software engineer, going for an internship, I would pretty much maybe like to work with, you know, someone that maybe also has like an engineering background and that can teach me stuff about coding. But this sounds like a completely different type of internship. Like what was your sell towards those people? Um, I, it's a good question, right? And I don't know what was the, the, that, you know, tipping point for them to, to say yes. Uh, but I want to believe is that because um, the problem we were solving, it's a very easy problem, right? It's a problem that everyone knows. It's everyone experience in one way or another. So I think for them, it was more like, okay, can we solve it or not? And then secondly, I think it was just, I was trying to create um, a nice place to work in, right? Like a nice culture, a nice vibe that we could do it all together and try it out. And I, I think it's also, you know, a lot of people, they want to start their careers in, in startups because it's an opportunity for you to learn a lot of things at once, um, right? So if you, of course, if you have a, a, an objective to dive deeper within your own vertical, maybe corporate is better. But if you just want to, like, you know, get your hands dirty and try out a lot of different things, that's a perfect environment. And I think from the very beginning, I had a lot of flexibility and freedom for anyone who was a part of the company that, yes, we have certain objectives, but you know, I trust you to decide what's the best way to get there. And that's kind of just the way I try to do that. All right. So you touched upon raising funds when you mentioned to help me with having something to show towards investors. You got investments. What do you think was your edge towards them? Um, I think I've really focused a lot on, uh, you know, kind of showing the, the actual problem because what I quickly realized from going to these investor meetings is that 
in the majority of cases, when I spoke to regular tech investors, they didn't take me seriously. They didn't think that it was a big problem. So I'll come in there, you know, small blonde girl um, saying that I'm trying to do something in fashion. And they were like, yeah, sure. That sounds like a, a side hustle to me. Um, I will try to tell them, well, imagine you go online and you don't know what size of a shirt to buy. And they were like, what do you mean? I'm buying this Miss Sony shirt that I've been buying or this, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. tailored suits. They always fit me perfectly. Yeah. So that's when I've realized that, well, they can't really understand the problem. So I started tweaking the problem and saying, like, imagine your wife goes online and they're like, oh, yeah, my mm -hmm. wife does buy a lot of stuff and she does return and she always complains about that. But I just felt that, you know, I needed to talk to people who understood the problem already. Um, that's how I ended up going after the fashion investors. And then also um, I talked to a few investors who were from SaaS and tech world. And for them, I was just pitching that SaaS tech kind of component of it. So it was just pretty much like adjusting the, you know, the pitch depending on who I was talking to. So you said like, okay, so this small blonde girl comes in, talks about fashion as well, makes it even worse. So being a woman in tech, what is your experience? There are two parts, right? There are obviously like personal anecdotes and stories I have from my life and we can spend another three hours talking about that. I've been in cases from like, you know, people inviting me for meetings that turned out to be dates uh, to, you know, people asking me at the age of 24, 25 when I'm going to get pregnant and that it will be a huge uh, risk for them. Uh, people telling me that I should get a male CTO who could do the fundraising for me because that will be better and so on. So uh, we can sit here long enough to talk about it. But there is actual research that shows that the biggest issue with the way investors um, you know, evaluate female founders is that in a lot of cases we ask so-called prevention questions. It's not questions about, you know, how big you can be and how big the market is and so on. Uh, it's questions of, you know, why this will not happen. And the other problem is that we are often asked to show the proof and the metrics earlier than other uh, male counterparts are asked, right? So it's almost as if you're asked serious A questions at seed stage and, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I think that is a huge blocker because it means that you as a founder, a female founder, you need to spend more time fundraising because you just need to go through a lot of people. You also need to show more proof, which means that, you know, your funding uh, cycle will be broken. So often you end up going for bridge rounds and things like that. And then it means that by the time when you really get, um, you know, the right product market fit and so on you might either already lost a lot of shares in your company or you just move too slow and i think that's why it's is just creating this uneven field uh for for the founders and why do you think that happens well i think it first of all it starts uh, from well i would say two reasons in a sense right first is because when we look into who has the money and who invests it's also not a really diverse group of people, right? Going back to the story I was telling you, like me being in rooms with this middle-aged white guys and telling them about buying online. They were like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. my, my shirts and suits uh, fit me well. So these people, uh, they're just themselves as a group or they're not diverse enough. So it means that in a lot of cases, they don't understand problems that founders are pitching them about. The second part, it's pattern matching, right? A lot of investors, the way they invest, especially I think still in Europe, though not to the large extent, is that they try to find patterns that worked before. And in a lot of cases, again, going back to the inequality that we have within this community and so on, a lot of founders that succeed who IPO, who build successful businesses and unicorns, they are the same guys, right? It's white 
middle-aged guys, like dropouts and so on, right? Um, so that's just what they're looking for. So when they see someone who doesn't match it, then it naturally becomes like, well, you know, are they really a good candidate? So how do you think we can break this pattern? We need to get more money uh, to female founders. It's that easy, honestly. It's just access to money. Um, it means that, you know, for example, a lot of funds, uh, VC funds that are out there, like I think there is a perception that they just get money off like, you know, wealthy families on board, but they also in a lot of cases get, get government money, right? So why not to make it a requirement that their uh, portfolio has to be diverse, that their investment managers have to be diverse, right? And that will be conditional for them getting that money from the government. Because if we are serious as a community, as a society to, to make a difference here, we need to be very swift in our actions as well. We know that the system will not change it by itself just because it wants to. You know, it's very easy for the system to preserve itself. And I think that's why we have to have uh, a bunch of different actions that will help us to move uh, the needle there. Um, we can also talk about different grants or you know other programs. And here, I mean, of course, one part is women uh, in tech, right? But I, I'm talking here broadly about underrepresented founders, you know, immigrant founders, LGBTQ founders, people of color. We know that there are biases in place that prevent those people from um, you know raising enough capital fast enough and build their pro uh, products and their companies better. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do here. And you touch upon something else. I mean, you're not only a woman, but you're also an immigrant, right? Is that also something that has impacted you, for example, in such conversations or has it impacted you in any way? Um, I think it did impact uh, for sure my journey, uh, maybe less so when it comes to the, the fundraising process, but I think it definitely impacted the the considerations that I have uh, when making decisions. Because I think one thing that is important to understand is, you know, running a startup is always hard for anyone, no matter how many times you've done it before, or who you are and so on. And here we're really talking about just extra obstacles that are created because of your background or who you are. I think when it comes to being an immigrant and an immigrant uh, founder, it obviously often means that, first of all, you have less of a safety net. Because in a lot of cases, like let's say, it's easy to say um, fail fast, succeed faster, but I know that if I fail in my company, I will have to leave the country because my visa depends on me building this company. If I fail uh, at this company, I cannot just go on unemployment because obviously that's not an option for me. Uh, because I'm building a company here where in general when I started, I didn't have friends and family who could invest, right? It also means that in the, uh, from the beginning, that option was closed for me as a, as a founder, right? So it just means that in a lot of cases, immigrant founders, they have a much higher risk uh, for, for them to build those companies. It's immigration, it's financial safety, it's just support net that they have. Um, in my case, I had uh, you know, a whole thing with like the immigration because it's like for until maybe two years ago, it's like it was such a nightmare to go through the immigration process because I was one of the first people who were on this like self-employment visa, which was not really built for tech startups in a sense. Mm. It has gotten better since in Denmark, but even now there are only 50 visas per year that the country gives to entrepreneurs. And it's broadly any entrepreneurs, not tech entrepreneurs. So that shows you the kind of that the, the obstacles that people have to go through in order to have even the chance and the right to start a business here and to do that. I was going through a process where every year I'll have to extend my visa and every time I'll have to wait somewhere between eight to nine months 
to get the decision. So it's eight to nine months of you not knowing what will happen. Can you hire this developer? Well, your company might not be around in eight to nine months if your visa is denied. Can you buy a new sofa at home? Well, you don't know, right? It's like, how mm-hmm. can you make any decision? And just the immense uh, pressure that it creates on you and the stress that it creates, right? So, I mean, those are the, all the things that go into you know your head when you are an immigrant entrepreneur because that's just not a, a, a side thing for you. It's an, an important thing. It, it has such a big impact. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can completely uh, imagine if you tell it like that, that that must be very stressful. Uh, and I'm also wondering, is it like, because this is very tied to, you know, oops, there goes my pop filter. <laughs> this is very tied to uh, visa stuff, but mm-hmm. I can also imagine that there's people like not being as open to work with, for example, an Im- immigrant as with like, you know, a native person. Have you ever had that? Um, I think it's it's an interesting one. I think in a way, like one of the reasons why I picked Denmark is because I knew that I could build a business here uh, without speaking Danish, right? So that was a huge thing for me. And I, and I don't think that has been a big obstacle in a way, right? Uh, that I didn't speak the language and so on. I would say that um, in Denmark, when especially in the beginning when I talk to investors, I will get that question about my visa and my immigration status here much more often than I will get it in other countries. And I think in a way, because when they looked at me, they saw a Russian founder. When I spoke to French or German investor, they uh, saw a Danish company. And that was a different uh, you know, kind of assessment for them. Mm-hmm. And what else should we do then? You mentioned access to investments, but what else do you think we could do or you and me could do to support underrepresented founders? Um, I think it's, you know, like there is obviously an individual action, you know, making sure that we support businesses that are ran by underrepresented founders, making sure that we support businesses that represent different communities and so on. Uh, But I do think that what will move the needle is the kind of a collective action. And it will either come from communities like I'm, in my opinion, what's happening, for example, in Sweden, I think Sweden is doing a lot of things in the right way, and it's coming largely from the tech community itself. It's definitely something that a lot of other countries, Denmark included, can learn from, right? Because there is an understanding in the community that we will all be better off if this more diverse and inclusive and so on. So, I mean, there are things that we can do on the collective, uh, collective uh, in, you know, uh, level. If you have a platform, make sure that you lend that platform to people who are not being underrepresented. If you have capital, make sure that you support the like VC funds or investors who are, have that diverse pipeline. If you're a founder, make sure that you hire people and you try to address the, the biases. I mean, it's a very complex problem. There is no one solution that will, uh, will solve it. All right, so angel investing. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is going on? Yeah, you know, uh, I think this is a whole new thing for me, uh, still very new, though, um, you know, at the moment when we are recording, I have made five angel investments, though I've just only announced one. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I think I've been I've been in and out uh, angel investment, not meaning that I invested myself, but I know a couple of friends who have been doing that and they would always reach out to me for advice and for help to evaluate and so on. And uh, I thought, well, it's a, it's a fun thing to try out. And then uh, late last year, I got an email from Sophia Benz, who is one of the partners at Atomico, um, saying that, hey, I'm running the second cohort of this Atomic Angel program. I would like to invite you to, to be part of it. And it's a super great opportunity because um, all the people in that cohort um, are people who are operators, who are community 
community builders, entrepreneurs themselves, people who've been through that. Um, and uh, we all come from different parts of Europe and we are all given, uh, you know, amount of money to invest in startups of our choosing. There aren't really many requirements from Atomico side. There, it's a lot of freedom for us. It's just we need to make sure that it's ethical. It's not like, you know, alcohol and porn and whatever. Uh, and uh, yeah, and that gives me an opportunity to connect with a lot of founders and, you know, decide what I'm, I'm investing in. But it's been so far very fulfilling and I love it. I, would, I, I will brag now. I'll say that out of five companies I've invested in, four of them, they have all female teams. One of them, it's a mixed team, uh, one female, one, one male co-founder. And uh, so to anyone who says that the problem with investments is that we don't have a pipeline, that is not true. I'm getting a lot of, and I'm not doing the outreach myself, I'm getting this uh, people reaching out to me. And I think in a lot of cases it is because they see a female, an immigrant uh, founder building a business in Europe and uh, they probably believe that I can help them um, just like by, you know, sharing the learnings that I have along the way. Okay. But like, what does it mean? Like uh, an angel investment cohort? Is it like the same as an accelerator program, but then for like uh, <laughs> angel investors? Or no, what does it no, mean? no. So the biggest difference there is that in the way for now, we are not putting our money in. So the money is coming from Atomicom. Mm -hmm. We're getting a carry on top. Uh, so it means that we get a part of the winnings, right? If that happens. But um, we are not the one investing the money per se. We are the ones making the choice and deciding and all of that, but the money is coming in from Atomico. And I think that is also a very great way to do that because they've got this amazing diverse group of investors on board. A lot of us, we don't have the money lying around to invest in other companies, but now we are given that chance to do that. And what is in it for Atomico then other than, you know, getting potential upside? Well, obviously it's also they're getting a better pipeline for future investments, right? Atomico is a late stage investor. Um, so we invest very early on. So it means that they get a chance to, uh, you know, get introduced and talk to a lot of companies, follow their journey through us. Um, they're expanding their reach um, and they're also building better uh, relationship with uh, respective communities because a lot of us, we come from different, like, you know, we have Dutch angels, we have Danish angels and, you know, all of that. And what is your, uh, your personal investment thesis or what do you base like your investments on? Yeah, so the way I look at it now, so I come in very early on. Um, so it's usually first the second round of investment that a, fun, a founder will raise. I'm focusing on underrepresented founders. So female founders, immigrant, LGBTQ, people of color. Um, in terms of the verticals, um, the way I look at it is there are verticals that I know a lot about. So B2B, SaaS, fashion, e-commerce. Um, and there are verticals that I have a very genuine interest in. So ethical tech, uh, impact, femtech, and things like that. So those are the kind of priorities um, that I have. Um, but first and foremost, for me, it's all about the founders. I want to make sure when I talk to them that there is a good connection, that they can open up, that I can add value. And then there is a very clear way for me to help them. That's what I wanted to do. When I look back and think about my investors, the ones that um, you know made the biggest difference for me are the ones who genuinely cared for me and they've been there for me and they helped me out throughout the journey. And that's what I want to become for founders as well. Awesome. Is there any scoop that you want to announce in this very highly listened to podcast about the four other investments you haven't announced yet? 
I can't announce the names of investments yet, but so the first investment I made that uh, was in a company called Library of Things. It's a UK-based uh, sustainable startup, um, and it's pretty much allows people like you and I, the millennials who don't own shit and uh, who uh, live in rented apartments and so on, uh, to get things, rent things that you might need for, you know, a couple of days. Uh, for example, I don't know, a machine to send your floors or uh, um, a PlayStation because you just want to play something and so on. So it's uh, an idea of like ending the ownership, revitalizing communities. Um, they focus a lot on the community aspects. So starting with communities that maybe have been overlooked for a long time and just, uh, you know, creating a more sustainable way for people to use things. Um, and then the rest of the company, so I have one company that comes from uh, fashion, sustainable fashion space, uh, femtech, and then the two companies within diversity tech as well. Awesome. Well, we'll probably hear a lot from them uh, with such an amazing new uh, investor. So, you know, when I listen to your story, I think there's one thing that comes back every time, like in all of your answers, and it's network. It seems like, you know, like one of your main... Uh, things of building your business is really that you're strong at building networks is that indeed the case and if so like you know how do you do that is it like a conscious thing you do mm, that's a that's a good one um i think i will not think about myself as a networker <laughs> in a sense right mm. uh but i think it's also because i don't come at it uh, from a conventional uh, point of view right um, I'm not the one who will go to like conferences and try to get like the most of the business cards and so on what I really try to do is I try to connect with people that I'm genuinely interested in and I respect um, so for me it's really important that whoever I'm talking to and I'm spending my time with they're first of all genuinely nice people I don't want to spend my time with people who are not good who are assholes right uh, even if uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that here on yes this, on do this, it uh, do it respected podcast <laughs> uh, but you can believe me later but uh, he can be or she can be the the most successful and the best person in the field but if they're genuinely not nice I don't want to spend time with them and the second thing that I always want to make sure that I'm uh, um, considerate of their time I do a lot of small things. Like for instance, I think some small things that anyone can do, but very few do. Like for instance, if I'm asking them for help, like let's say introduce me to someone or give me advice, I always report back what happened. I never will be the one who just disappears. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, you introduce me and then you never hear back. And it happens all the time, but it's a, such a small gesture that means the world. I always make sure to always come back to them and explain, well, like tell them what has happened with whatever they, you know, advised me on. Um, I want to make sure that I can add some value to them as well, right? Um, I can like, share some insights that I have. I can talk to them about things that I know or whatever it is. So I really believe more about like long lasting, deeper relationship than just like, you know, exchanging business cards and getting value from one-off connections. Cool. Any last things you want to share or say to potential female founders or founders from other underrepresented groups that might be listening? Maybe we'll have no listeners at all. Anything you want to say to inspire them? I think, uh, you know, entrepreneurial journey, it's, a, it's, a, an, it's an amazing thing. I think that was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life to actually committing myself and, and becoming a founder. It is a hard journey, so it's ex extremely important to make sure that uh, you do it right and you don't burn out. Um, think about it from the perspective of like a marathon, right? And not a sprint. I know this metaphor has been used so many times, but it's really true. Um, but yeah, and then make sure that you reach out to like, you know, reach out to me if I can help you or reach out to other founders who can be of help there. 
So that was Gulnas, a true female powerhouse in the second episode of the Product and Founders podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're interested in the upcoming ebook with lessons from the most talented product managers and founders in the world about how to build great digital products, go to productandfounders.com. See you next time.